our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Richard Waitley once said, Everyone wishes to have truth on his side, but not everyone wishes to be on the side of truth. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 1009th program broadcast. We've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, our chat board, and everything else. So let's get started. What's on the table today, Jonathan? Well, Rick, our question is, has the gospel been corrupted, part two? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Okay, so has the gospel been corrupted, part two. A few weeks ago, we began talking about Jesus speaking the parable of the wheat and the tares. This was one of the few parables that he actually interpreted for his followers. And in the interpretation, he revealed that it was a prophecy about the difficult future of Christianity. He spoke of false Christians and an entire age when the true and false would grow together, outwardly indistinguishable, from one another until the harvest time. We traced some of the corrupting influences through the long history of the church and began to see how the gospel was treated and mistreated along the way. Jesus, after speaking the wheat and the tares parable, spoke two other parables, and we believe that they further describe the corrupted corrupted condition of Christianity. So what do these other parables tell us? Are we in danger of being deceived? Is the gospel even intact here and now in our present world? So, Jonathan, this is one you got to hold on to your seat because there's going to be a lot of stuff coming down in this one. That's for sure, Rick. (laughs) And, uh, folks, it is always our objective with each subject we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. And don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on air. Okay, so Jonathan, as we get started, we started this a couple of weeks ago. We went through most of the parable of the wheat and the tares a few weeks ago. So let's just take a few minutes and go back and kind of put that parable in place again, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Well, Rick, there are seven parables in Matthew 13, and the first, the parable of the sower, 
was the only parable to omit the beginning phrase of the kingdom of heaven is like. You know, why? You know, and that's an important part of Matthew 13. You have those seven parables, and only the parable of the sower, the very first one, doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like. And we believe the answer to that is because it is a people versus process difference. The parable of the sower is about people individually. Remember that they are represented by the plants that grow from the seeds of God, and some, you know, they're on good soil or bad soil or the, the rocky soil or the birds get them. It's about people. It's about individuals. But the other six parables are about the process of how the kingdom of heaven would develop through the age of the gospel. And remember, Jonathan, one of the other key things from our, our discussion uh, a few weeks ago was the idea of the kingdom of heaven isn't always something in the future when we pray thy kingdom come, right? Right. It is, can be here right now. The kingdom of heaven is like the context of the development of the true followers of Jesus are like. When he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like, that's what he's talking about. It's much more of a here and now. So it's the development of the true church through the age of the gospel. So let's get into Matthew 13, um, uh, where the parable of the wheat and the tares starts. And again, we're just going to recap the parable as far as we got with it, and then we'll pick up and run from there. So Matthew 13, 24 gets us started. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now remember, Rick, uh, we talked about in part one that the good seed represented the children of the kingdom and the field represented the world. Okay, so, and, and how do we know that? Because the parable of the sower, or, or, I'm sorry, the parable of the wheat and the tares was explained by Jesus later to his followers. So we can say this with great, great confidence because all we're doing is repeating what Jesus said. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a safe place to go. For okay. sure. So, so the good seed represented the children of the kingdom and the field represented the world. Okay, so that's how the parable starts. The kingdom of heaven, the development of the true church is like a man, Jesus, who sowed the good seed in his field. Let's go to the next verse, Matthew 13, 25. But while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Okay, so here's where trouble starts. There's always trouble that comes into play. Uh, what's the first point of the trouble? Well, Rick, as the good wheat are children of the kingdom, so the bad are children of Satan. Okay, and again, Jesus, Jesus explains that to us. But again, we have to remember, this is not talking about individuals, but about the class so it's the good wheat are the, the children of the kingdom, the class, the group of the children of the kingdom, because it goes through the entire gospel age, and the bad are the class, the group that is uh, sown by Satan to, to deceive and to derail the true children of God. What's the next point? Well, Rick, there is definitely a warfare here being described between Jesus and Satan. Yeah, and this is a warfare that went on for a long, long time before this. Uh, the warfare started in the Garden of Eden when uh, Satan usurped authority that was not his. It continued through the whole development of the plan of God, and Satan was continuing to be at war with Jesus. I remember even at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, you know, he's baptized, 
and he's going to go off to fast and pray. And what's the first thing that's recorded that happens to him? Satan tempted him three times. So just when things are getting started for Jesus, Satan is right there. He is always fighting the cause of Christ. He's always against the cause of Christ. And that is a really important basis for us to understand as we go forward with this particular parable, because this parable, we're going to touch on two others uh, today, all have to do with how Satan fights that fight. And you know, the great thing, Jonathan, is if you are in a war and you know how your enemy is going to fight, that gives you a tremendous advantage. It really does. So folks, you got to stay with us because it's about the fight of your life. That's what this is about. If you're a Christian, it's about the fight of your life. And we're going to be going over what Jesus tells us are Satan's methods for fighting. And they're dirty and they're nasty and they affect you here right now. So be, be very careful. Pay, pay close, close attention. Let's continue laying out the parable of the uh, wheat and the tares as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 13, 26 to 28. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares began evident also. The slaves of the landover came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? See, now up to this point, all, uh, all everything in, in the parable of the wheat and the tares had uh, prophetic meaning that Jesus explained later. But Jesus offers no explanation for these verses later on. Why, why, why would that be? Well, Rick, perhaps because the conversation that takes place is not transferable to prophetic reality. Jesus does not assign a prophetic identity to the slaves of the landowner as they are only props in the story to explain the devious work of Satan to the listener. All right, and, and see, this is important because Jesus gives a very detailed explanation of this parable and leaves this section out of the explanation. And the reason he leaves it out is because it's just there to explain what's happening. And that, you know, that gives us a, a, a tool for, for looking at parables. Every single little detail in a parable doesn't necessarily have that prophetic meaning. Jesus sets the standard for us to understand parables that way by not explaining these verses because they're there just to help us get the story, so to speak. Okay, so what we have is the bad seed is sown, the workers discover it and say, Master, what's going on here? What's happened? You want us to go gather up this bad seed here because it's, it's going to corrupt, it's going to get in the way of, it's going to interfere the good seed that you sowed. So we last, uh, a few weeks ago, for part one, we were talking about some of the planting of paganism into the church, into the early, early, early church. We, we went through several, several examples of that. We're going to go back to some of those, and we're going to take a very clear historical look. We're going to be looking at Constantine and Constantine's influence um, throughout the podcast today. So this is from Constantine's Pagan Christianity from Ninth Saint, and it really gives you a sense of something that maybe many of us are not really aware of. Constantine can rightfully claim the title of great, for he turned the history of the world into a new course and made Christianity, which until then had suffered bloody persecution, the religion of the state. And so, as people from around the Roman Empire enter the Christian church, 
they brought with them many of their former pagan beliefs and practices. Over time, church leaders began to embrace the regal robes and flamboyant ceremony that was part of the pagan religions. And in place of the simple commands of God, they began to teach superstitions and man-made traditions. Now, instead of the Christian church converting the heathen world, the pagans were converting the church. Ouch! I know. The <laughs> pagans were converting the church. Hey, two quick examples. How about Easter, the goddess Estera, and Yule, which uh, celebrates the winter solstice? <laughs> yeah, and, and you look at that and, and how those things have been sucked right into Christianity. And what that is, is it, it is a watering down of something sacred. And when you water down that which is sacred, you take its power away. When you water anything down, you take away its potency, its power, and it no longer has the effect it once had. We're going to get into a lot of other things uh, in terms of what's happened to Christianity. Because, folks, bottom line is Christianity has been deeply corrupted in so many ways. And we want to touch on that as we go through our podcast today. So, uh, Jonathan, the master declares the appropriate course of action. Because remember, just in, in, in the parable, they said, well, should we go gather them up? What does the master respond in verse 29, verses 29 and 30 of Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you might uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so this is kind of a curious turn because your gut would say, get that nasty stuff out of there right now. But the master doesn't say that. You know, he says, no, let them grow together. So his Jesus explanation is given nine verses later in verse 39. So let's just touch on that, and I want to go back to this, the, the, the picture. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So he's telling you that the enemy is the devil, and you know we've already made that assumption. Uh, the harvest is the end of the age. So what he's saying is Christianity is going to grow along go along and grow along if you will in a corrupted state over the last 2000 years over the last 2000 years and the master jesus says let it be don't touch it leave it alone until the time of the harvest until the time when the age of the calling of the gospel is over so there's a very specific time frame, although it's a really long time frame. And you say, well, why would Jesus allow the corrupted to grow alongside of the, 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 the pure followers of Christ? Because it was a test. It was a test for the true followers of Christ, and it also gave voice to the false followers so that eventually the lesson could be forever learned of what false following looks like. So several reasons that happens. So the age of Christianity and the gospel will end when the gospel call is complete. Jesus also says that in Matthew 24. And this world order is brought to an end. The time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. That gives you a sense of the end of this part of the plan of God. 
So what does it all mean, and what about the end of the parable? We haven't even gotten to the end of the parable yet, and we're not going to get there for a little while because we've got other parables to drop in. So, so Jonathan, let's just sum up what we've talked about here. What's Jesus' warning up to this point? Well, the body of Christ will, for the entire age of the gospel, be subjected to the challenge of growing in an environment that Satan dwells in and is corrupted by his influence. So let's think about that. Jesus prophesied specifically that the body of Christ, that those, those who would be the, the, the truest followers of Jesus, would be growing in an environment, like you said, for the last 2,000 years. That's a lot of generations of, of Christians being called. Yes. The environment would be such where there is surrounding of corruption— and a lot of times, you couldn't even tell the difference. Because remember, when wheat and tares are growing in their early stages, they look the same. They do. They, they, and, and you can only tell the difference once harvest comes because the wheat has fruit and it bends down. The Because it's heavy. And the tares got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They're straight up in the air. That's right. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's kind of what it looks like. So, so he, he, here's where we get to at, at this point. You know, this is not happy, exciting, or even remotely promising. It is not. And it's kind of scary, Rick. How does this all happen? What about false Christianity? How do we tell who is who? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Let's put the wheat and the tares parable on hold for a bit. Our introduction today asked, what do these other parables tell us? And that's exactly where we need to go right here and now. The important point to build on is this. The next two parables are spoken right after the wheat and the tares. And we therefore see those next two parables as building on the foundation of the wheat and the tares. And Jonathan, I can't stress this part enough. The next two parables are showing us what the parable of the wheat and the tares looks like in a practical sense. So we need to pay attention to them. The beauty of these next two parables is they're both like two or three line parables. They're really simple, really straightforward. So uh, we'll, we're going to go through those two parables and then we're going to go back to the wheat and the tares and see how it all ends up in, in the end. But uh, you know, before we do that, Jonathan, let, let's get into sort of another parable. This is a great little story uh, told from, by Jesse Morrill, uh, the Church of the Comfortable and Tolerant. And he tells a story of the Church of the Comfortable and Tolerant. We're going to share parts of this story with you, and we're going to add that if you listen to the entire story that Jesse Morrill tells, we do not, do not agree with his doctrinal stance on things. And I'll get to that later on. But the story was good and effective to paint a picture of the prophecy that Jesus is speaking to us. So here's a once, in a once upon a time for you. Once upon a time, in the land called Feel Good, there was a church. The church of the comfortable and tolerant. And the church of the comfortable and tolerant just recently hired a new pastor, Pastor Peacekeeper. 
and Pastor Peacekeeper just graduated from the most popular seminary in the land, the Seminary of Smooth Talking. And the church of the comfortable and tolerant loved the pastor's new sermons. Some of their favorites were, God is happy with everyone. Everything is fine and dandy. And of course, there's nothing but good times ahead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I love this story because it, it, it's, it gives you that, that, that laid back sense of, yeah, things are not good. And folks, look, Christianity is not an easy task. If you read the scriptures, you understand that. If you're being presented with a brand of Christianity that's an easy task, I will say to you at this point, think twice because it's not easy. And if, we, if the scriptures say it's not easy and they tell you it is, somebody's not telling the truth. And I can tell you this, the scriptures don't lie. So think it through, okay? So Jonathan, in this segment, we're going to cover the parable of the mustard tree. That's the second parable. It's spoken right after the parable of the wheat and the tares. And it's what, three or four lines long. So let's just read through the entire parable, Matthew 13, 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is large than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay, so that sounds all nice and cozy and warm. I mean, look at this. You got this little tiny seed that grows these great big branches and the birds in the air, air come and nest and everything is wonderful. Sounds but like is a, it? Oh, <laughs> Okay. But well, is it? All right. So, but is it? Is it a happy lesson? Is it inclusiveness? Is it everything we've ever dreamed of? Is it? First, well, let, let's, let's take it apart. Jesus elsewhere references a mustard seed, and most of us are familiar with this other reference, Luke 17, verses 5 and 6. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Okay, so the mustard seed can, as Jesus told us in Luke 17, what you just read, it can represent the great growth potential of faith. The great growth potential of faith. So if we take the meaning of the great growth potential of faith and look at what that would mean and, and drop it into this parable, Okay, so we've got this great growth potential of faith that can build. Have you ever, Jonathan, have you ever seen a mustard seed? Yes, I have. They're teeny. They're kind of like a poppy seed. Yeah. Is what it reminds me of. But it's, it's like, it's, it's like the, this, a speck of sand. Yeah. It's just this tiny little thing. And when you see the side, you know, a mustard tree is technically not a tree. It's a bush, but it looks like a tree. Yeah, it's big. Yeah. yeah. So this tiny, tiny, tiny little thing grows into this big tree. You think, wow, that's amazing. And that's what Jesus was saying. Have faith like a mustard seed, and your faith can move things in life. That, that's, that's the message Jesus is giving. So you've got this great growth potential of faith. So, so before we go, go further, just, just a couple of comments here, Jonathan. Go ahead. Sure. Remember, Jesus just had finished teaching and explaining the parable of the sower. 
In that parable, he used some of the exact language as in the mustard tree, like the birds of the air. Okay, so the teaching uh, of the parable of the sower, the same phrase occurs. Now remember, the parable of the sower was the first of those seven parables. Jesus had them all right in a row. Okay, so let's just go back to the parable of the sower real quick and just get the context. Luke 8, 4, and 5, where he mentions the birds of the air. When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of parables. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he had sown, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. All right, so it's very specific. The birds of the air ate it up. Now, Jesus explained the parable of the sower, just like he explained the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in, in his explanation, he makes sure we understand what the birds of the air represent. So the, in the explanation is in Matthew 13, verses 18 and 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Okay. The, 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 the seed falls by the road, it trampled underfoot, and the birds in the, of the air eat it up. They snatch it away. So Jesus is really specific. He says the evil one. Now, who would that be? Satan. Okay, that's a, that's a simple, simple inference there. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, takes it away from him. So, Rick, these birds of the air are not nice things. No. Not even remotely close to nice things. As a matter of fact, they're the exact polar opposite of what we would consider to be nice things. The birds of the air in the parable of the sower, Jesus tells us, are a picture of Satan. And the fact that there's more than one bird, it would be Satan and his minions. Satan and those working with him. So you've got this sense of darkness represented in the birds. Now, folks, look, I mean, you know, a lot of times we thought, well, I think about birds and, you know, we hear the songs of the birds and we love birds and birds are beautiful. And I get all of that. But in scripture, oftentimes we're going to find out today, birds do not represent things that are good. And in this case, that is exactly what is happening here. So birds of the air are not nice things. There's, um, we need to, to conclude this as we're, 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 we're not told, uh, we need to conclude that this is the same because we're not told something different. There were a few differences between the parable of the sower and the wheat and the tares. Remember the seed and the field, uh, or the seed rather, represented something different in the two parables, but Jesus made it clear. He doesn't tell us something different about the birds of the air, so you've got to conclude that it's the same thing. So we're talking about Satan ruining things. Satan coming to nest in the branches of the potential of great faith. Ephesians 2, 2 helps us to see that more clearly. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, the birds of the air. Now, it's not the same exact Greek word for air, but it gives you the same thought. The prince of the power of the air comes to nest in the branches of the potential faith of the true church. That's not comfortable. No. That's not, that's not who you need to be renting space out to. It sounds like tares next to wheat. Right. 
you know, and, and when, when it says that, that the evil one sowed this, 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 this bad seed, that's what it's telling us. Satan comes to live there. This is not a comfortable picture. So let's go back to, apo- to, to the apostasy that began with Constantine. You know, and, and look, a lot of us look back at church history and we, and we see, wow, look what Constantine did. He made the church the, the centerpiece of Rome. What a great thing. But was it? Was it a great thing spiritually? Was it a great thing for the cause of Scripture? Or was it just a great thing for the cause of politics and people? See, that's what you have to ask yourself. Let's go back to Constantine's pagan Christianity from Ninth Saint. You're trying to Christianize an empire. You're trying to Christianize a pagan culture. The old basilicas uh, were basically pagan temples. Put a cross over it. Put in paintings of biblical scenes, biblical heroes and saints and martyrs. The speed with which the early church tobogganed into apostasy will take your breath away. That's pretty dramatic. It is. You know, and and again, what we're looking at is we're looking at a corruption of the simplicity of how the gospel began. And folks, look, this may be, you may be thinking, where are you guys going with this? Well, we're not going down a great road, tell you, because Jesus is telling us that we need to understand this. So we want to be straightforward in, in in our putting it all in order. So this parable seems to be accentuating, now this is the parable of the mustard tree, seems to be accentuating the lessons of the first parable of the wheat and the tares from a different perspective. The true church is developed in an environment of faith pictured by the mustard seed, that through the gospel age grows large and ends up attracting the birds, Satan and his influence, to dwell in its branches. This is in great contrast to what Jesus described the followers' life was supposed to look like. See, he told us what our lives are supposed to look like. And you know, Jonathan, there was no, remember in, that, in the first soundbite from, uh, from the uh, Constantine's Pagan Christianity, talked about adopting the flowing robes and the grandeur of things. That's not what Jesus described. So let's take a look at Matthew 7, verses 13 to 16, and just look at what Jesus described for us. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. Okay, so here's the question. You've got the narrow gate to life for the Christian versus the wide gate or the broad gate that leads to destruction. Have churches confused the broad way to be the way of life? It's not. How sad, uh, Rick, because that's not what Jesus taught. No, it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. You cannot confuse those two roads and say, oh, look, Christianity, a four-lane highway. No, Christianity was never described as a four-lane highway. It was described as a steep and narrow and difficult way. And if you're being taught that it's a four-lane highway, then you think again. Because somebody's not telling the truth, and the scriptures don't lie. Verse 14 from Matthew 7. For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, 
and there are few who find it. There are few who find it. Have churches eliminated the difficulty of the way so as to make room for everyone? Unfortunately, yes, Rick. Uh, And one example would be that they teach tolerance even for those who are blatantly sinning. And, you know, tolerance is an important aspect of Christianity. Tolerance and mercy are important, but they have to be done in the context of righteousness, godliness, holiness, following self-sacrifice. That has to be the context of our mercy and our, and our understanding. So, I mean, we, we, we're eliminating, if we're eliminating the difficulty, we're eliminating the Christianity. Then what have you got left, really? Verse 15 from Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Have we fallen under the melodious word spells of those who preach for their own wealth? Rick, it's happening more than ever in our day. And in our episode 960 on March 6, 2017, um, is Christianity a greedy religion? A great one to check out. And what it does is it helps us to understand the monetary value of true Christianity versus the monetary value of false Christianity. And there is a world of difference between the two. Okay? Remember, Jesus is the guy who didn't own anything except the clothes on his back. Okay? Let's just leave it at that to give us the example. Uh, And now verse, uh, where are we? Verse 16 from Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So, folks, here's the question. Have we recently looked at the fruits of those who preach earthly abundance? Of those who preach, you know, God wants you to have everything right here and now. And we're not talking about their, their earthly abundance as fruit. That's not, what we're, that's not what fruit is here. Fruit is Bible-based spiritual fruit. Have we looked at that fruit to measure what we're really being taught and who's teaching us? Well, Rick, it's lacking, and it's almost non-existent. Yeah, and, and, and that's a really sad thing. So, Jonathan, the point of the parable of the mustard tree is that the great growth potential of faith grows into this monstrous bush which looks like a tree to the point where the birds can make their nests and live there. And that's not a good thing. It's not, because the birds represent Satan and his minions. So this parable is a warning of the growth of Christianity, and, and it's built upon the basis of the wheat and the tares. It's telling us that the growing together gives easy opportunity for Satan to just, you know, make his, uh, you know, j- 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 you know, pitch his tent, if you will. Camp out. Hey, I can live here. Nobody's going to care. And when you look at Christianity and how pagan so much of it has become, you know what? It looks like nobody cares. And we've got to ask ourselves, is that what Jesus wants us to, to, be, to, to be reacting with? Like, oh, it's okay. It's all good. It's such a beautiful church. It was such a beautiful sermon. Everybody seems to be so happy. But is it Christianity? That's the question we have to ask. So, I mean, you know, as, as we wrap up the segment, great here. Great, great, okay? It's bad enough. Uh, true and false coexist. And now Satan moves in as well? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. 
the mustard tree ends up housing the enemy. Is the third parable just as bad or even worse? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. To really get what Jesus is teaching, we need to be able to go where the lesson takes us without reservation. To find such a destination, we absolutely need to focus on how the scriptures define themselves. This simple principle leads us to clearer and bolder biblical understanding. But Jonathan, it leads us to difficult, hard, challenging biblical understanding because oftentimes it's not comfortable what you see there. And today, we're looking at a prophecy that Jesus gave through several parables that is describing something that is very uncomfortable because what we're saying is that so many seem to name the name of Christ, but it's not Christ that's being lived or taught. That's, that's, a, that's a huge, huge accusation. Jesus himself is making it. Let's go back to the parable of the church of the comfortable and tolerant. Remember how uh, Jesse Morrill is telling us his story and everybody seems to be really happy in the church of comfortable and tolerant until... A pastor peacekeeper once made a very terrible mistake. He allowed one of the elders into the pulpit, Mr. Conscience. And Mr. Conscience did nothing but call their mistakes sins, and he called them to repent. You see, Mr. Conscience had never been to the seminary of smooth talking, and maybe he should have, because his sermon did nothing but offend the congregation, offended at his audacity and his arrogance. And they said to themselves, who does this intolerant, judgmental, self-righteous legalist think that he is? Why should we allow this false preacher in our church to bring this congregation into bondage? You know, into bondage and to, to, to what? And, you know, if you're going to be in bondage, and folks, no matter what, we're in bondage to something, let it be righteousness, let it be godly righteousness as given to us in Scripture and nothing else. So, Jonathan, as we move over into this next segment, what are we talking about this segment? Well, Rick, this is the uh, third parable, the flower and the yeast. This one could also be interpreted as a good thing, but is it? Yeah, that we, same question. <laughs> yeah, so we, we had that question come out pretty dramatically with the last little <laughs> short parable. Remember, the, the, the last parable was simple. Mustard seeds planted, grows up into a big tree, and the birds come in, and land in it. And it sounds so nice, but it really isn't, okay? So the parable of the flour and yeast is actually literally two lines long. Matthew 13, 33, what is it? He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Okay, so it's simple. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And, you know, you take the leaven, and you know that leaven is yeast, and mm -hmm. you take yeast, you put it into flour, and it gives the, 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 the flour the ability to expand and to mm. grow. 
puffy white bread. Yum. Yes, isn't it? And look, don't you like? Look, honestly, don't you? Wouldn't you rather eat bread that that has the yeast in it that it, it's risen versus the flat bread, which is like, like it's like you know chewing like like I don't the know, saltine? Yeah, kind yeah. Of. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, from the standpoint sure. of taste, you know, it's it's just more fun to eat. You put the peanut butter and jelly on it, and you know, it's all good. Mm. But the question is, is this good? Now, interesting. The first thing it says is she hides the leaven in the the in the flour. Now, look, whenever you're hiding something in something else, you gotta wonder how good that can be. Okay, so we're gonna get back to that shortly. But w- what about what about the flour, Jonathan? What what uh, does the Greek in- Greek English lexicon tell us a little bit in terms of details here? Uh, well, now it says the um, the. Remember the sower parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, which equals our nourishment. Right. Okay. So the parable, so, so the lexicon said that the, it's wheat flour. Okay. So it, in, in the parable of the sower, they were sowing wheat seeds. So you get this sense of wheat flour, wheat seeds, the sower parable, uh, the, the, the seed is the word of God. So you get the sense of, okay, this is good stuff. The flour is made of good stuff. It's our nourishment. So what about the, it says in the, in the translation that we read, uh, three pecks of flour in the King James, I think it says three measures of, of flour. What, what about the three pecks or three measures of flour? Let's take it from Barclay. In Palestine, bread was baked at home. Three measures of meal was, as Levinson points out, just the average amount which would be needed for a baking for a large family. And Rick, uh, I was thinking about uh, the number three in the scriptures always represents a complete amount. And, and you know, that, that's an important aspect. Not only are the three measures or three pecks of flour uh, enough to feed a fairly large family, but you're right. The number three represents a kind of a complete experience. You know, you think about the three temptations of Jesus. You think about Jesus actually drew Peter to him three different times. You think about Peter getting the message to, to go to the Gentiles three in the, in, in the vision, and the vision came to him three times. You think about Peter denying the Lord three times. You think about Peter being forgiven three times. The whole experience. So that, you're right, that three measures of flour can give you a sense of the whole experience of nourishment was in place. It was there, and it was good. So we have sufficient supply of godly food for the household of faith. So in this parable, you've got the three pecks of flour, the three measures of flour is good. It's enough, and that's the beauty of it. It's enough for the, for, for the true followers of, of Jesus. So what's going to happen to that? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's go back to Constantine's pagan Christianity from Ninth Saint. And Jonathan, this is... This particular soundbite to me was kind of uh, was really fascinating because I didn't know this particular fact about early Christian churches in Rome. Listen carefully to what happened because remember Rome was a pagan nation. It became a Christian nation. How did they convert? Listen to this. As millions of pagans hastily joined the church, They were naturally reluctant to dispose of their idle treasures. The Romans and the Greeks were so used to being surrounded by symbols of their deities. They began doing the same thing with Christianity. 
so many of these new converts just relabeled their idols with Christian names, like Paul, Mary, and Peter. A statue of Jupiter became a statue of Peter. And we know that because it has a sun disk right over its head that indicates that this is not Peter, but it's a pagan statue that's been renamed. Instead of Romulus and Ramus, hey, why not the martyrs, the great martyrs Cosmos and Damien, right? So one of the things that happened, and, and this, is, this is just downright scary, is you took the pagan symbols and you just changed the name. Same symbol, different name. So... That's unbelievable, Rick. It, 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 it just gives you a sense of how, um, how dark the time was. Now, it looked like it was a grand time because it looked like Christianity had gained this foothold and was now able to conquer Rome and become the religion of this mighty empire, Rome. And in fact, what was really happening was the paganism of Rome was crushing Christianity but keeping the name. They crushed true Christianity and kept the name. It became an idolatrous environment. Idolatrous. So with that in mind, in this tiny little two-line parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. What is the leaven all about again it sounds like it could be good you put the leaven in the flour the flour rises and boy it makes such great bread but what does the leaven represent let's go to commentary from j vernon mcgee what does the leaven represent there are those who interpret the leaven as the gospel and they ought to know better nowhere is leaven used as a principle of good it is always a principle of evil the word leaven occurs 98 times in the bible and it is always used in a bad sense. And Rick simply stated, leaven is sin. So you have the three measures of flour, the full experience, the full nourishment of the word of God to be fed to the true church. It is enough, it is sufficient, it will nourish them, and now what you're saying is it has been polluted with sin. That's right. Man, so not only is the environment walking into a polluted place and keeping the pollutions of the place, but now the message, according to this particular parable, is becoming polluted as well. Luke 12, 1 gives us a sense of leaven being used the way that uh, you, you described a sin and the previous commentator had also described. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All right. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the puffiness. You know, and they, they were a great example, unfortunately, of that puffed up attitude of look at me, look at how spiritual I look, look at how spiritual I sound, look at the things that I do that the law tells me to do rather than looking on the inside and looking on the heart. So Jesus told us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and he called it hypocrisy. And that is a sin. That is, it, it is a dramatic, dramatic sin. So the flower parable, that's the one we're talking about with the leaven. 
tells us that hidden within the spiritual food set aside for the spiritual family will be the corruption of sin and hypocrisy. Now, folks, again, this is giving us a picture of Christianity. And it's not just now, but it has been for a long time. That's what we are living in, living with, living through. This parable similarly exhibits a warning as the previous two parables, as the parable of the wheat and the tares, which incidentally we still haven't finished. Okay. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get back to finishing that. But the wheat and the tares shows the growing up together. The mustard tree shows the resting of Satan in its branches. And now this parable, uh, the, the leaven in the flour shows the corruption of the, of the, uh, the nourishment. So we're going to um, give what we believe are Jesus' warnings from each of these three parables, and we're actually going to come back to them a little bit later as well. So Jesus' warning, Jonathan, in relation to the wheat and the tares. The body of Christ will, for the entire age of the gospel, be subjected to the challenge of growing in an environment that Satan dwells in and is corrupted by his influence. So we start out, and see... I know I say this a lot, but Jesus is really smart. (laughs) I mean, you think about it. He builds the story with the big parable of the wheat and the tares and talks about the growing through the age of the two together. So it's almost you can't tell. And then he drops in the parable of the mustard tree. And and we're going to get to that in a second. But in the growing of the wheat and the tares, what he's saying is, look, be aware that all along the way, it says, remember it said, while, while men slept, and we realize that the apostles even said, I think it was the apostle Paul said, look, I know that when I, once I die, grievous wolves will come in. So that's, that was exactly what happened, and the corruption began early on, and it, you couldn't tell at the beginning, okay? So the parable of the wheat and the tares is warning us that the environment that Satan dwells in is, is the same environment that the church is growing in. And that's not a comfortable thing. What's Jesus' warning for the parable of the mustard tree? The structure of the church's faith practices houses Satan's influence. Okay, the structure, the faith potential grown up by that mustard seed into that great big bush which looks like a tree, it houses satanic influence. It gives it a place to live. Now, the true church doesn't intentionally do that. But that's what happens because they're surrounded by so much falsity and so much hypocrisy. What's the parable of the leaven, or the, the, the message, the warning rather, Jesus' warning in the leaven and the flour parable? The nourishment being fed to the church contains satanic influence. Okay, so you have growing together, you have the church's faith practices, and now you have the nourishment of the church. All of those things, all three of those things represented by each of the parables contain satanic influence. So folks, you know, this, this is, Jonathan, this, this should make your blood pressure go up, folks. Yeah, this is terrible, but, but the Lord told us so. So we should understand it and take solace in it saying, okay, how's my heart? How am I doing? Is my mind in the word of God? Am I following in Jesus' footsteps? Yeah, and you're right. We, so you have to look at it and say, it is terrible, but the fact that Jesus told us means he knew it ahead of time, which means God's plan knew it ahead of time, which means somehow it's under control. 
somehow it's all going to work out in the end. We just got to get there yet, and we're not there yet. So we're, we're on our way, okay? So with these warnings in place, let's now go back to the conclusion of the wheat and the tares, because this conclusion shows us what will eventually happen with the problems. So Jesus, in the conclusion of the wheat and the tares, shows us what's going to happen with all of these other things that have developed in the meantime. Matthew 13, verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So what Jesus is saying is, it's going to be okay. At the harvest time, when the call of the gospel church is now coming to an end and things have come to their fruition, I'm going to tell you to gather the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them up. And then I want you to gather the wheat into my barn. So there is a really great ending for the wheat. Now remember, it's a class, not individuals. We're going to get to that a little bit further. Uh, and there's not a good ending for the class represented by the tares. So Jonathan, remember, again, this is process, not people. So our first and perhaps most important observation is that the gathering up and burning is symbolic of the cease desist, and destroy order that Jesus declares. This is all a symbol. And he's saying, I'm going to let it happen for a while, and then I'm going to say, enough. The time is up. The wheat is ripe. Let's do this harvest. Let's pull it in, and let's move forward. So, you know, Jonathan, not only is this scary, but it makes you frustrated and mad as well. It does, and that means we need perspective. With Jesus' warnings in place and things looking very bleak, what do we have to look forward to? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now you know our looking forward should be built entirely around what has always been present that is the fact that God's redemption plan for our world already accounted for the depth of sin and corruption that would be breached God intentionally allowed all of this to happen as a testing for those called and as an eternal example for all to eventually behold. So, Jonathan, as usual, there is not only a reason, but there is a profound reason why God allows these things to happen. Well, only our Heavenly Father could create a plan like that. And, and it, it's a plan that's built around eternal lessons, not lessons for the moment, not something that, oh boy, that's going to hurt tomorrow. It's something that, Oh, that's going to be remembered for eternity. And that's what we need to be focusing on here. Let's get back to the little modern-day parable from the Church of the Comfortable and Tolerant from Jesse Morrill. And remember, Mr. Conscience came in and really messed up the place. Okay, so what happens next? And so Pastor Peacekeeper received many complaints from the congregation about the sermon of Mr. Conscience the congregation was outraged, and Pastor Peacekeeper knew he had made a terrible mistake. 
You see, Mr. Conscience had betrayed the trust of Pastor Peacekeeper. So Pastor Peacekeeper told Mr. Conscience he was no longer welcome in the church any longer, and he asked him to leave. And so everyone in the congregation was very happy that Pastor Peacekeeper asked Mr. Conscience to leave the congregation. Business at the church continued to function as usual. And you could tell I did a little bit of editing here in terms of time and so forth. But, uh, you know, what the moral of that story up to this point is you don't want anybody upsetting your apple cart because your apple cart's really nice. It's really cool. It's really exciting. It looks nice. It looks pretty. But underneath are all a bunch of rotten apples. And eventually everything's going to get rotted if you allow those rotten apples to, uh, to, to stay there. Jonathan, before we go further, we do have uh, Trish here with a comment for us. Hello, Trish. Hello. Just a quick uh, question, actually, for you and Jonathan. Um, why would anyone want to be associated with Christianity knowing that it's so corrupt? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I don't want to be called a Christian because of this. All right. Now, that, that's, a, that's a really valuable, valuable question. You know, why would? And, and the answer is really simple, I think, and it's straightforward. The answer is because Christianity, in its truest sense, is the most valuable, beautiful uh, way of life that, we, that has the most impact on humanity for all of eternity that you can imagine. So you want to be a part of what it is that is good. You don't want to be a part of all of the mess that surrounds it. So, and, you know, I, I get Trisha's question because you listen to some things and there are those that represent Christianity. You say, that's not what it is. And if that's what you think Christianity is, I'm not that. I don't want to be that. And that's the way we should look at it. So w there's action, and we're actually going to get to that a little bit later on. So good, good question there. Jesus gives a detailed explanation of the necessary separating work at the end of the age. Because now, he, we're at, at the parable of the wheat and the tares, we're to the end of the age. Remember, he says he's going to send the reapers at the end of the age. And what's going to happen? So let's go to Matthew 13, uh, pick up in the middle of verse 39 and go to verse 42. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And I will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so now we've got some more imagery that we have to deal with here. Okay, what is this furnace of fire? It's the great time of trouble. And here's how we know. Okay, now here's the thing, Jonathan, that's really important with the furnace of fire. It, we know what it is because other scriptures tell us what it is. Let's look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So, And Rick, that, that sounds like a tree again. Yeah, you're right. A lack of growth of faith there. <laughs> yeah, leave them neither root nor branch. But it talks about the day is coming, burning like a furnace burning like a furnace and jesus uses the picture of a furnace of fire burning like a furnace in malachi a furnace of fire in matthew 
Yeah, it's the same imagery. So do you have the ability, the right to put those two things together? I, I think we do. So this parable, I think, is specifically an end of the age picture. How do we know that? Jesus said it. He said at the end of the age, here's what's going to happen. It's shown by verse 40, the end of the age picture. Um, Terrors are burned up with fire. So shall it be at the end of the age. And uh, so let's talk about what this furnace of fire actually does. We need to be really specific here and really clear because this is one of those scriptures, Jonathan, that is often dramatically misrepresented. So let's, let's talk about some points about this furnace of fire. Well, Rick, the first point refers to separating out of the false Christian systems at the end of the gospel age. Okay, so there is a separating work that the end result of that separating work is the furnace of fire. Okay, what's the next point? The tares. Okay, that's the false systems. Are destroyed in fire. And Rick, there's no torture here. Okay, there is a massive difference between destroying something and, and, and tormenting something. There is a massive difference between the two. It says here unequivocally and scripturally, they are destroyed in fire. This is not some burning fire of some burning hell somewhere. It is not. Unequivocally, it is not. It is destruction. What's the next point? Point. I'm sorry. Well, Rick, this furnace of fire is the great time of trouble. It's not Gehenna, which is the second death. Right. And even Gehenna is not a picture of torture. It's a picture of destruction. In which case, it's, this is not even representing that. It is this great time of trouble. What's next? The weeping, etc., refers to the anger and lamenting at being exposed as false, and even has that idea of being shameful, having shame. Okay, so the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes. Yeah, and, that, and that's, a, that's a phrase that, that's used six or seven times in the New Testament. And again, that's a phrase that is dramatically misunderstood by a lot of Christians in a lot of places. And don't we have, don't we have a, a reference on that? Oh, Rick, we do. Uh, episode 869, that was on June 7th, 2015, and the title is, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God? And we really covered a lot on that episode. Yeah, that episode was entirely about the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That was part one of a three-part series, so check that one out as well. And folks, you know, we're throwing a lot of things at you. What you want to do is you want to be able to get Seeker Rewind, the full edition, and you get that by signing up for our Christian Questions newsletter. Go to ChristianQuestions.com or you can sign up for it uh, through your app. But the newsletter, it's a free service. The, it gives you all the scriptures and a lot of the commentary that we go through with graphics and illustrations. Helps you put it all together, and it's going to show you how to get to the, what these references are so you can check them out for yourself. The last point, Jonathan, on this, um, this furnace of fire and, and what it does pre-judgment day and see verse 43 and no allusion to eternal torment it's just destruction okay it's just destruction it's before judgment day and again people confuse the time of trouble with judgment day they are two separate times 
Again, you have to understand scriptures to, to, to get through and see the separation. Verse 43 tells us judgment day is when the true church is going to be shining and reigning with, 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 uh, with Jesus and judging the world. And verse 43 describes that. Go ahead with verse 43 of Matthew 13. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So there is a good ending here to all of this. Yes, there is. So again, let's go to the terror warning that Jesus gives. And as we wrap up, we're going to begin our wrap up now, even though we're in the middle of the, the fourth segment, we've got one more full segment to go. As we begin, we're going to repeat all three of these warnings from the three parables. And the next several comments we make are going to be in relation to the warning that Jesus gave for the parable of the wheat and the tares. So again, what is that warning, Jonathan? The body of Christ will, for the entire age of the gospel, be subjected to the challenge of growing in an environment that Satan dwells in and is corrupted by his influence. Okay, so now we're going to begin to get a lot more specific as to what that environment looks like and what the corruptions might look like. And we already started talking about idolatry, gross idolatry that was picked up from paganism and just brought right into, into Christianity seamlessly by changing the names on existing idols. They were idols. Let's not forget that. Let's go back to Constantine's pagan Christianity from Ninth Saint. And again, this is about that same idolatry. The representations of Isis, which is originally an Egyptian goddess but has become very Greek already, becomes essentially the representation of Mary carrying her child. You have a mother and child tradition all the way down through history. Uh, you have it in Mithraism, you have it in Babylon, you have it all the way back in Persia. It appears that Mary acquired some of the characteristics that were associated with some of these other goddesses. She wears a dark blue coat and she stands on the half moon. She is the mother of all gods. Isis carrying her son Horus. That is the image that gets a new name, and now the name is Mary carrying the child Jesus. So, if something is idolatry, by changing the name, you're not changing what it is. You can change the name, but an idol is still an idol. Let's understand that. Let's be sober as we look at that and realize Jesus was teaching us to look out for the things that would corrupt Christianity's, Christianity's uh, faith system. You know, Jonathan, one of our initial questions uh, was at the very beginning, are we in danger of being deceived? Absolutely, yes, Ray. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do we do? Okay, what do we do? First, we realize that judgment comes upon the false systems of Christianity in unmistakable fashion. It does come. It does come. To get a picture of this, let's drop into Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. And see, Jonathan, before you read that, I just want, I want to emphasize, we have to, here's what we do. We've been talking about what's happening up to this point. From here on out, we're going to be looking at the things that we're facing and what do you do about it? How are you supposed to cope with it? How are you supposed to deal with it? Where, what, are you, what are your actions and reactions supposed to be? So let's listen carefully. Revelation 18, verses 1 to 3. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. 
And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay, fallen is Babylon the great. And you know, it's interesting, Jonathan, I'm just going to just draw a quick allusion here. Babylon the great is fallen. Remember in the Old Testament, the great king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Remember one of his dreams was of a great tree that had grown mighty, mighty, mighty in size and had been cut down and it had an iron band put over it so it could not grow again. You think about that and you think about the imagery of the mustard seed and the mustard tree that grows up and you think, interesting, Babylon is fallen. What does that mean? That is the false systems of Christianity, all of them that have embraced the idolatry and the corrupted food and so forth. Continue. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. There they are again, the birds. For, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So, you, you say something? Well, yeah. All the, if all the nations are interacting with this, that means they are large systems that have control and power, right? Yes, yes. Folks, look around you. Look at the large representations of Christianity and start to ask yourself the serious questions. Is this, the, is, is this where I should be? Start to ask yourself those questions. Because the next point is, first you realize judgment is going to come upon the systems. Second thing we need to do is open your eyes to examine where you are and what you're partaking of, and then act accordingly. And Revelation 18, the next verses, speak something very vital and very important. What does it say? And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you will not partake in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And Rick, uh, her is mentioned over and over again, and it was in in, um, the earlier verses. And their churches are called the mother church, the daughter churches, Mm -hmm. uh, and that you can picture and imagine what, what is being spoken about. But I have a personal uh, story, Rick, to share. Go ahead. When God opened my eyes to his word and the good news, Rick, I called the system that I grew up in, that my parents took me to every Sunday, and I said, I want you to take my name off the membership. I am not a member of your organization anymore. I do not believe the things that you were teaching me based on what I have found, and it's, it's, I am cutting the strings of, of you, and I walked away, and it was very relieving when I did that. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do that, because you know, there, a lot of times there's a lot of history and tradition and family and so forth, but, you know, knowing the truth according to the Word of God is the most important thing. And the next segment is all about understanding the truth. And it takes, Jonathan, what you did was a courageous thing that we encourage others to do if you feel like you're in that situation where there's such incredible corruption and paganism surrounding and and, and drowning out the voice of true Christianity. So 
all of Jesus' warnings led to a simple conclusion. If you're truly called according to his purpose, you will seek to fellowship where there is as much spiritually healthy environment and spiritually pure food as you can find. Don't be fooled by fluff and dramatics, by pomp and circumstances, by emotion, wealth, and vast numbers. Okay? So look, now we've gone from scary to frustrated and mad to now needing to act. You're right. Action is now crucial, but we need specifics. How are we supposed to know what we're supposed to run away from? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. We not only need to know what we are to run from, but we also need what we're running towards. That's what we need to know. We will put together a brief list of some, some of the key beliefs to look out for. With this list, it is crucial to review it through the eyes of scriptural teaching only. Do not take the word of Jonathan and Rick for this. Look at the scriptures and figure it out and see it for what it's worth. Forget what sounds good or easy or even logical. Without clear scriptural support, none of these things matter. True scripture, Jonathan, is based, uh, I'm sorry, true scripture-based teaching is very logical. Because I just said, even if something sounds logical, just because something sounds logical doesn't mean it's righteously, godly logical. It doesn't mean it's scripturally logical. That's where we have to go to. That's what we have to focus on. So, Jonathan, let's just quickly go back to our um, story from Jesse Morrill, The Church of Comfortable and Tolerant, and just see what ended up happening in that environment. Once things were back to normal, the way they had always been, everyone was very happy in the land called Feel Good. Pastor Peacekeeper continued to sugarcoat sweet and wonderful little lies to preach from the pulpit that made everyone comfortable in their sins and he heavily guarded against preaching on abrasive truths. And who could blame him? You see, the pastor loved his new church, his new home, and of course, his new salary. He couldn't put these precious things on the line. And so Pastor Peacekeeper guaranteed that the church of the comfortable and tolerant was as satisfied and as happy as they can be while they sat in their pews of complacency and compromise. Ouch. Not a good situation. Not good at all. And Jonathan, we don't want to be there. No. Because, you know what? It sounds very comfortable and it sounds very nice. But it's not scriptural. It's not following Christ. Uh, uh, Jonathan, before we continue, Trish is back. <laughs> well, Jonathan and Rick, we have a chat question that came in from ChristianQuestions.com. It asks... Is there a parallel of Israel leaving Egypt and the true church leaving paganism? Both situations were affected by idolatry and unleavened bread was important in the Passover before deliverance. Uh, Rick and Jonathan, we love hearing from our listeners, whether it is during the live podcast or anytime during the week. So just go to ChristianQuestions.com. 
All right, Trish, thank you. That's a really good question. And yes, there is a huge par- parallel there because, you know, you see the sacrificial lamb that gets them out, gets them out of the, the pagan environment, gets them out from under the thumb of those things that held them in bondage. So that sacrificial lamb is Jesus. And then in the bigger picture, you know, uh, Moses represents Christ leading the people out. So it is a dramatic picture of what we are looking at here. And Jonathan, we want to focus on the drama of that picture by getting very specific now with some very specific um, teachings that we believe the scriptures are very, very clear on for us. So folks, pay close attention here because these, we believe, are really serious things. So the mustard tree warning from Jesus was what? The structure of the church is faith practices houses satanic influence. Okay. The structure of the church, church's faith practices house satanic influence. So let's take a look at a few what we consider to be biblical truths uh, and see where the problems lie. First biblical truth. Simple. Jesus died once for all mankind. Okay, simple. Stated in Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself okay it is explicit that jesus offered himself once for all so the question we have to ask is why then if jesus did it once for all why do some of us re-sacrifice Jesus over and over and over again when he only asked us to memorialize him? Why do we say that those emblems of the bread and the wine or the, 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 the cup are, are, symbol, are, are actually the, the, the body and blood of Jesus? It says it was done once for all. Luke twenty two nineteen, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Rick, we believe what the Bible says is once a year on the anniversary, the Last Supper replaced the Passover. We celebrate the memorial of Christ's death. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Not do this so the sacrifice can be effected all over again. But he's specific. He's clear. Why do we try to make it more? Why do we try for the, for the drama of that when the scriptures don't support it? Our next biblical truth, Jonathan, is what? Because Jesus died once for all, the clergy-laity relationship of priesthood over the church is not the way Christianity was designed to operate. Okay, that can be very shocking for, for many of us. The clergy laity, the people in the pulpit and all of those guys and the rest of us, that was not the relationship that was designed for the Christian church. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Okay, so there it's talking about the Old Testament. And they're saying that you did have the priesthood that was representing the people. 
And in that, in, in that picture, in that environment, they were giving these sacrifices on behalf of the people again and again. Why? Because the sacrifices didn't actually take away sins. They were just a, a, a symbol of, of God saying, okay, good, keep doing this until the true sacrifice actually came. And that is shown to us in Hebrews, again, the next few verses, Hebrews 10, now verses 12 to 14. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies may be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So that one offering was put in place, and you didn't need then the priesthood for the rest of the, the, the believers. See, the Jewish nation as a people needed the priesthood as a go-between between them and God. But with Christianity, we don't need a priesthood. Why don't we need a priesthood? Because we are the priesthood. If you're a true follower of Christ, you are the priesthood. Revelation 1.6 tells us that. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why have we divided ourselves to be those who sit and those who teach and there's this great, great void in between them. You know, Jonathan, in a lot of churches, you have people looking up to those who, who, who teach from the pulpit, and, and they're looked upon almost like gods. They're looked upon as, as bigger and better. And that's the same the way that people looked at the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. That's not the design. We are all, if you are a true follower of Christ, if you have been called and chosen and given God's spirit, you are part of the priesthood. Now, the priesthood's job in the future will be to bless the world of mankind. That's a different story. But right now, Jonathan, we are all supposed to be working together. You know, the, the, the picture of the head and body of Christ in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Yeah. The head is Jesus. The body is the rest of us. All of the, the apostles included, we are all intertwined one with another. So, Jonathan, this gives us a, a sense of the biblical truth. This is what Christianity is supposed to look like. One last soundbite, Constantine's pagan Christianity uh, from Ninth Saint, and this is in relation to baptism, which is another issue that has come up in, in the paganizing of Christianity. The baptism ceremony was also performed in a lake or a river fully submerged, signifying they were fully washed from their sins. The practice of baptism was gradually altered by the church. Hundreds of years after Christ, sprinkling and pouring was introduced as a more convenient mode of baptism. This actually undermined the powerful symbolism of the service, and it contradicts the example of Jesus, who is baptized by immersion. So baptism is another area that when you look into it, what you see is there is a dramatic, profound symbolism to it. And it is that complete submersion in the water. And not only that, it is to be done by those who are called to follow Christ, not children. Different story. But just understand, these are things that the scriptures teach, and these are things that the scriptures do not teach. What we have to do, 
Don't take our word for it, okay? Don't take our word for it. Go study the scriptures. Now, we can give you podcast after podcast after, uh, um, on all of these subjects. I don't have a number for you on the baptism one, but again, go to our, subscribe for the Christian Questions newsletter, get CQ Review on the full edition, and they'll reference it for you in there, the, the most recent podcast on water baptism, what it really means according to scripture. And, and Jonathan, I was just handed a note like, okay, we're, we're saying, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the clergy laity system isn't appropriate. And so Trish hands me those, this note that says, well, don't we have leaders? Yeah, we do. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, okay? So if you're thinking that, hang on, we'll be there. What's the next? Now, before we get to the next biblical truth, these past biblical truths, Jesus died once for all mankind. We shouldn't be re-sacrificing him. The clergy laity system is not the way it was designed in Scripture. Those were in reference to the structure of the church's faith practices, the mustard tree. In relation to the leaven, what was Jesus' leaven warning again? The nourishment being fed to the church contains satanic influence. Okay, the nourishment being fed contains satanic influence. Under that heading, let's look at some other biblical truths that need to be put in place in relation to what we typically and uh, normally see now. Next biblical truth is what? The Christian church is the people, not the building. A church building has no specific sacredness according to Scripture. Okay, and again, for some of us, you might think, what are you talking about? I walk into a church, and I get this feeling and this sense of holiness. That's nice. That's good. But the building was never meant to be the sense of holiness. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were preaching with intensity and power from house to house. Was there any less spirituality because you were in somebody's house than in a big, big cathedral? No. No, of course not. It's not the building. It's the people. Romans 16, 5, another example of that. Also, greet the church that is in their house. Greet, and this name I just love, Eponidas, <laughs> okay. my beloved, whom is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Okay. So, Rick, here they are from house, the church in the house. Right. It, the building does not matter. Now, a church building is not inappropriate, okay, but it shouldn't be the center focus of the church. It's okay to have a building. Okay, fine and dandy, but don't make it the focus. But it could become an idol to sure many. Could. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why you got to be careful with such things. We're almost out of time, Jonathan. Next biblical truth is what? Christian leadership is necessary and designed to come from within the local church. Okay. Christian leadership. And that was Trisha's question that she dropped on my table here. It is necessary. It is important. We are told to have it, but we're told to get it in a very specific way. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Notice appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Not appoint elders to every city, not appoint elders over every city, but in every city. And Jonathan, a close study of how they did that reveals that putting elders in place, those who would shepherd the flock, was done by each individual congregation by way of them voting. Not some central organization appointing somebody, 
but they appointing from within their own realm. That's the way they did it at the beginning. Who do we think we are by changing that? I mean, really? Well, you know, you can get, uh, you can get better teachers. Yeah, but are you getting spiritual teachers? Are you doing what the scriptures tell you to do? Folks, that's what we're talking about here, about these three parables and the result of them. Final biblical truth, Jonathan, is what? Christian learning was not designed to come from just listening and nodding, but from study. Okay, and nodding. You can be nodding by nodding in agreement or nodding off to sleep. I'm not sure which. (laughs) But our Christian learning is not supposed to come by just me listening to you. Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. That means you as an individual. Hold fast to that which is good. Jonathan, we need to wrap this up. A final scripture, Luke 8, verse 10. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So what that scripture tells us, again, and that's from that same context we've been talking about with these three parables, is that we have to be aware and careful when it comes to looking at what true Christianity really truly is. It is something we need to work at following after carefully, honestly, with sincerity, and with courage, because scriptural truth is not often found in all the places you might think it would be. Just because it looks good doesn't mean it's scripturally sound. Study to show yourself approved. Folks, this is a tough subject. We hope you've enjoyed being with us. We hope you take seriously the admonitions to really, really focus on finding scriptural truth and finding those who have that scriptural truth and go and be with them. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, the gospel's been corrupted. But what about you? Think about it. Folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about how parental is our parenting. That's what we look forward to for next week.